today we are taking a look at play, creativity, and social movements. Have you been to a rally, demonstration, or protest lately? If so, you may have been surprised to discover a playful, carnival-like atmosphere. Today, a new cohort of social activists is using a play to create social change and reinvent democratic social relations. Despite the contention that such activities are counterproductive and may detract from the gravity of the contested social issue, social movements continue to put the right to party on the table as part of a larger process of social change, as humor and pleasure disrupt monotony while disarming systems of power. Well, in his new book, Play, Creativity, and Social Movement, if I Can't Dance, It's Not My Revolution, activist and academic Benjamin Shepard explores notions of play as a social movement activity. Through historical analyses of social movements from Dada and Surrealism to Situationism and the Yippies, to his first-hand account of work within ACT UP, anti-gentrification, and global justice movements, Shepard considers some of the meanings, applications, and history of the concept of play in bringing about social justice. Well, my guest this morning is Benjamin Benjamin Shepard. Benjamin Shepard is an activist and assistant professor of human service at New York School of Technology, the City University of New York. He's the author and or editor of six books, including Queer Politics and Political Performance, uh, Play, Pleasure, and Social Movement, White Knights and Ascending Shadows, Act Up, uh, from Act Up to the WTO, so many others. And he has also contributed to uh, enough journals and uh, fanzines and newszines that it would take up the entire show. So why don't we go ahead and wish Benjamin Shepard good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for uh, for joining us. Thanks for having me, brother. Appreciate it. The uh, again, let me tell you, I, I mentioned this to you uh, off the air, but the book is is really really great, and uh, it for such a a thick. Uh, topic and uh, rich in history. It really is a wonderful read. So uh, congratulations on that. Well, for coming from you, that means a great deal. I have so much respect for what you do with the show and for the peace work you guys you're doing in Southern California. I mean, it. it uh one of the big reasons I wanted to write the book was in part to sort of talk about the work such as scholars, scholar activists such as yourself, the people that are out there both theorizing what's going on as well as supporting social movements. I think that's that's what's so important about the sort of new cohort out there is that people are really excited about not only trying to make sense of social movements but makes sense by participating. And that's that's what I think is so lovely and valuable about this movement right now. Well, let's get to uh get to the uh the issue at hand. As as mentioned in your intro, you're the author or editor of uh some six books covering a, a range of issues, some of which are pretty serious, the AIDS epidemic, uh community building, urban protesting, globalization, the World Trade Organization. Why did you decide that the time was right to devote a book exclusively to the role of play in social movements? It's, it's a great question. I, I think that I first started really contemplating the, the play element um, in social movements um, 20 years ago in California um, after the L.A. riots. I remember the, uh, almost 20 years ago, goodness, um, I remember literally the day after uh, the Rodney King verdict when everything, everybody in New York, I mean everybody in the world, but particularly in Southern California, we were all shocked that 
any jury could find the police um, without harm for what had happened with Rodney King. And yet, so we go out for the campus rally. I was in Claremont at the time. And there's some African-American activists clapping hands and skipping. And I just remember there was so much anger, but there was also a, a joy in speaking out. And, and I think that's the thing that was so surprising to me. I mean, Frances Fox Piven, we, we, we once talked about this. She said, you know, when you're locked arm in arm with your friends and you're running into a line of police and you tell them to screw off, why wouldn't that be play? Um, fighting authority can be a joyous endeavor. It also, I think for me, so I come out of this L.A. riots moment. I'm seeing the joyful defiance of people speaking out not holding it to themselves, not being quiet, but speaking out, speaking truth to power. Um, I get to San Francisco and I, in 1992, 93, 94, 95, I'm working in an AIDS housing program and people are dying like flies. I think 95 was the peak year of HIV deaths in the United States. And it was, so there's so much illness and death. And I work in this facility and I'm listening to uh, Verdi and Mozart's Requiems at night and it's, I'm pretty morose, and I love the, and I see that people in San Francisco are, are actually actively embracing the tragic comic continuum that's, that's in front of them. They see the tragedy of the loss, particularly of young people, um, and they see communities of color being eviscerated, queer communities being eviscerated. They also see the joy of communities coming together and taking care of each other, forming mutual aid networks. Um, that's really where the San Francisco model of care was born, was neighbors taking care of neighbors. You see that with Occupy Wall Street as well. You see a mutual aid model of people taking care of each other. I remember my clients going out a lot. They had HIV, but they would go out a lot. I remember going to the AIDS quilt. I will never forget this moment. I went to see the AIDS quilt. The last time it was completely laid out in Washington, D.C. It was 1996, and it's literally football field after football field, and you can't watch it walk through the AIDS quilt without being really upset, at least because every single quilt is a person who's died. Right. And it's like a Civil War battlefield. And we're hearing Cleve Jones speak, and I'm standing, and there's a guy cruising me. <laughs> I was like, this is supposed to be a serious moment. This isn't a cruising moment. And yet I realize that's part of the movement. It gets people out. Cleve later told me that. It's part of long-standing gay liberation tradition is that people cruise each other at demonstrations, and that gets people out. So I thought there's something really, really powerful. I mean, if you write about, I mean, Douglas Crimp writes about being at Vito Russo's uh, funeral and everybody laughing at jokes. So I think that this resilient, that, that humor becomes, humor and creativity and play becomes a resiliency. And that, cultural work becomes a resiliency. I think that's what, that's where I was interested in play. Obviously, if you read my work, you can see I'm pretty slippery with the term play. I also think about cultural work and how culture helps people cope with really, really difficult moments. I mean, there's a famous moment in civil rights movement when a woman talks about um, a man wanting to put out a cigarette in her face when she was at one of the, one of the uh, I think at Woolworths. And uh, as he's standing in front of her and she's engaging in her peaceful, nonviolent response, he starts to pull out a cigarette and put it in front of her face. And through her the back of her mind, she hears the song she'd heard in church her whole life, We Shall Not Be Moved. And she stands tall, and he sees a strong, resilient woman who's coping with a difficult situation. And I think that's where I see play being so vital, is it's 
connects with cultural resources, creativity, that very free part of us that we all have inside of us, that children particularly have, and it, it, it can be powerful. It isn't always peaceful. Look at kids playing. I mean, they can, it can be utterly engaging. It can be violent. It can be exciting. It can be creative. It can be expressive, but it's a potent force, and I think that's part of why I wanted to... The beauty that I saw in community organizing was the joy of people engaging in that creative experience together in the streets, in community organizing meetings. Um, so the play was both instructive, I mean, a- affective. It helped people cope with these moments internally, you know, deal with the long haul and enjoy themselves in the long haul. But it also became a messaging device, a theatrical messaging device. I mean, I, if I sound vague, it maybe is because I am. I mean, I when I first started doing research on the topic of play, I looked in the Oxford English Dictionary for what does this word mean? Right. <laughs> I found page after page after page on play as a noun and a verb, as, well, and as a verb. So well, let's explore the literature review, and some people get stuck because there's so much material about the history of play from uh, Shakespeare's, you know, Victorian England to forward. I mean, so right. it's... It, it's a lovely topic, anyway. So. Well, let's let's ex- explore that for for a minute. And I should just point out for listeners, you know, not to do your other works uh, a disservice. I mean, your your other books uh, tackle topics like the AIDS epidemic and and so forth, and yet you emphasize the the play and the joy and the um, the resilience or the the you know the endurance of uh, the individuals within that movement. So while the topics might be heavy, uh, those two are uh, interestingly enjoyable reads, given the, the sometimes, you know, uh, uh, the gravity of the topic. But so in, in, your, in answering that question, you, you kept interchanging the word play with defiance. And I think that that's a really interesting juxtaposition. So uh, you kind of touched on how... Um, the, the difficulties of defining play, but uh, maybe you could give some examples. Well, first I will say, in a nutshell, I, I would consider play the joyous part of building a better world. I, I, a couple of examples would be an ACT UP or Gay Liberation, Gay Activist Alliance ZAP, where you, you know, speaking truth to power to somebody, an official in, 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 high, uh, in, in a position of power. Um, it can be the carnival, the up is down quality, where the, the top of the world becomes the bottom and the bottom becomes the top, which is, I think, part of the dynamic, part of the Occupy Wall Street thing, as you're seeing role reversals all the time. People are getting fired. They're changing roles. They're all of a sudden becoming poor pe- part of poor people's movements. You, s- you think it's mariachi bands and Latino movements. If you see the immigrant rights movements, there's mariachi bands. People are celebrating. It's people sa- sharing food together in meetings. It's the creative brainstorming that goes on. So I think, I mean, Heisinger is, a, you know, is the Dutch historian, and he said it's something that is... Not real, but it's utterly serious and engaging. It's, it, it's, there's a secretive quality to it as well as an expressive release quality. Like if you're, uh, when you're getting away from something, you know, when you, when you, when you've been able to get, a, get, get away, get away with it and you run away in excitement, like that's, there's a play quality, a free quality. Kids running, kicking a soccer ball. If you see kids playing games, they often like to break the rules. <laughs> That's, they, they, it's really hard for kids to embrace the idea that you can actually, you should actually follow the rules in a game. So it's rule breaking. Um, so 
So there are lots of, lots of forms of it. In terms of social movements, though, I mean, I think that it's important to note that the labor movement, IWW's use of direct action, I consider form of play. I think the cultural work has always been part of social movements. I think the civil rights movement used play when they, uh, I mean, there's the, the, the famous image of a child dancing, almost dancing away from the fire hoses um, in Birmingham. Um, this kid isn't afraid. This kid sees this thing as kind of funny and, and is running away from it. And that's, I mean, is, is it running away from the fire hose almost like a hide-and-seek game around a tree. So um, I think uh, if you see the no-nukes no occupations in the 70s, those long occupations, there was always a sort of a festive, defiant quality to them. I mean, of course, the gay liberation movement that I study a great deal, starting with the kick lines during the Stonewall. I mean, we are the Stonewall girls. Um, literally doing a kick line in front of, a Rockettes kick line in front of the police as the riot cops are moving in. There's so many examples of play. And, and particularly if you look at the blockade in 1999 in Seattle, you see people dancing to hip-hop when they're blockading the streets of the, of, during this World Trade Organization meeting. Um, the so sea turtle, the sea turtle. Play brings there. a lot of people together. I think that's one of the things that I love about play is that everybody is invited to participate. This isn't a vanguard activity that only some are allowed to take, take part in. It brings everybody. It highlights people's strengths. It allows people to bring whatever they can bring into a movement. And I think that's part of what's really important about it. If you're just tuning in, we are talking about Play Creek creativity and social movements if i can't dance it's not my revolution it is the uh new book by uh activist and academic or academic and activist benjamin shepherd and uh, we're talking about the uh the role of play in movements um you you write a lot about uh folks like the reverend billy and uh you know people of that uh reverend reverend billy and the uh church of what no shopping is it but the church has stopped shopping they've become the church of earth illusion there you it's go. Evolving. It used to be the church of stop bombing during the war. So it, it's continuing. One of the things I really uh, like about uh, the book, your book, is um, the history that you present of, uh, of play. Um, certainly there's the whole notion of the carnival, which goes you know, way, way back. But if, we're, if we limit our, our history to contemporary movements, uh, going back to the early 20th century, take our listeners through some movements that they may not have been familiar with, like the well, Situationists or Dada. When I was starting to, to write about this, I, I, I hadn't really realized how much the Surrealists and Dada used to play. And I think I... I met you during when the anti-war movement was on the rise, and we were trying to we were talking a lot about what happens when an economy, a whole economy, is based on war, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the stocks are rising for these you know defense contractors. The Carlyle Group is doing great. Um, uh, so in in that moment, we kind of think that this is our moment. But then you look back and you see Vietnam did the same. The Vietnam activists were aware of the same thing. When I first look at play in social movements, I also see that Dada and surrealism, in some way, which is in some ways were a response to the British, English, you know, European um, decision to collect to engage in slow suicide over a generation from 1914 to literally split up sides and say, okay, now we're going to kill millions and millions and millions of our young, and then we'll have a detente, and nothing will really have changed. I think a lot of people came out of that moment thinking, wow, okay, so if nationalism, work, 
and war are what the best and brightest are telling us to do. This, if this is what the, the rational world, if this is what the Enlightenment has taken us to, maybe we should rethink this a little bit. And so you have the Dada movement, uh, an absurdist movement, saying, has Dada ever talked to you about war, nationalism? No, it's not. It, it, maybe it'll talk to you about sardines, but it's not going to talk to you about this stuff. So you have this critique of <clears throat> what a logical linear world will be like. They, it, then you have surrealism say, okay, if the linear world is doing this, which just says work, 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 work until you die, um, maybe and this is what a rational world is all about, maybe we should embrace the irrational world, dreams. You have psychoanalysis saying there's actually something meaningful about the unconscious life, the unconscious world. And we can explore that through children's play. We can look at how, how do children play, how do they experiment with reality with, through their play. So, I, so you, you have these creative expressions. You have the Weimar Cabaret in the 1930s, which, of course, the first thing that, that the Nazis did when they, when they entered power in 1933, one of the first things they did was destroy Magnus Hirschfeld's sexology museum and destroy the cabaret in Berlin. They saw that as the most subversive part of what Germany was going on in Germany, and they wanted to stop it. So um, I think the play element disappears a little bit during the, late, during, the, during the war. After the war, surrealism gets started again. Um, you have situationism get started. You have a zap in Notre Dame, Notre Dame, 1958, which is the sort of situationist's big introduction into power. And then you have theorists such as Herbert Marcuse who start to really look at Freud's writing and this idea that there has to be something to more to life than work and means of necessity. And, Freud, and, and Marcuse said in Eros and Civilization, there, this is hence the political possibilities of play. Um, one of Herbert Marcuse's students, of course, was uh, Abby Hoffman. And Abby Hoffman loved, loved Marcuse because Marcuse didn't force him to talk social theory, but they could smoke pot together. Right. Um, and, then, and then movements take off embracing this idea that there, has, there could be something else to an anti-war movement than an earnest linear argument. If, if, if a linear worldview got us into these wars, we should use an unlinear, anti-linear activist approach, which embraces affect and pleasure and offers somebody else another way of feeling and being in the world. And I think that's what, part of what the appeal of the Yippie movement was, was saying, you can be free, you can meet in public space. And I think that's what I think I want to segue into, is that a lot of play movements are movements about people building space together, building community together outside of cost, outside of capitalism. And I think that's, that's part of the, cap, the appeal of People's Park. It's part of the appeal of Occupy Wall Street. It's part of the appeal of Reclaim the Streets, the global justice movement, which his big ambition was to reclaim, to use a sort of DIY, a burlesque of DIY activism to reclaim public space in the public commons. If you have public space together where people can share and build and create resources together, play together, be expressive together, you've got something close to civil society. You've got something close to real democracy. And that's, I think, often why you see the powers and principalities move in and crack down on movements that are engaging in occupations. Of course, 
sometimes, you know, the, the, the guards are down, the defenses are down in capitalism. And you see that with this moment with the Occupy Wall Street moment, where literally you've got a privately owned public park in downtown Manhattan in the financial district, which is technically a public space. These have never really been tested public spaces. Um, I'll just for your to give a little background to your readers, a publicly owned private space in New York City is a, a plaza that is made outside of a building which got increased height and bulk in order um, in zoning concessions, uh, but they had to build a public space in order to have a taller building. So this Occupy Wall Street space is literally a space where people have taken over a park, which is a privately owned public park. So it, the New York Police Department and Parks Department aren't in control of that park. It's a public space. And you're seeing amazing creative sharing and drawing and art and food and religious services, multi-faith religious services and speak outs public assembly. We literally got a public commons taking place right now, and this public commons is expanding around the United States. I mean, basically borrowing from the Arab Spring movement, Tahrir Square, um, where even in Tahrir Square there was a child care um, area for kids to play because their parents would be out at the demos all day. So you maybe know, that's, that's a, a long answer to no, uh, but it, a, a simple question, but I think you see what I would, I think the, the point that I want to bring out is that play a good movement has to have art and songs and creativity and expression and that doesn't mean it doesn't have to have things such as articulation of an issue a clear articulation of an alinsky like issue that's going to galvanize people wealth and inequality for example which is what we're seeing in wall street uh it doesn't have research a movement has to have research to substantiate its claims um and a movement has to have mobilization. It has to have direct action, which is what we see in the civil rights movement, what you see in Occupy Wall Street. Movement has to have media and communication strategies to communicate these aims. It has to have short-term and long-term goals. And then once all these things are in place, I think play really complements and helps people sustain these movements. I mean, if you're in it for the long haul, and I think that those, the people that I interviewed in my book, I interviewed many people that had literally been involved in civil rights, anti-war, environmental activism, gay activism, women's movement, ACT UP. These are people that are involved in cohort after cohort of activism. They had to enjoy themselves along the way. If they weren't going to find that enjoyment, they couldn't stay involved over the long haul. The so I think that's the other vitality of play is how it helps people stay involved, helps people get their needs met. If people don't get their needs met, they're going to book. They're not going to stay as part of a movement. And there's a great quote uh, you begin your book with uh, from Barbara Ehrenreich where she says, uh, you know, you shouldn't have to wait until after the revolution for gratification. Right. And, and I, think, uh, I think that that is just uh, a really great way of um, d discussing the importance of, of uh, having fun just for self-preservation, let alone, right. you know, let alone uh, all of the other things you mentioned. I was down at uh, Occupy LA uh, this past weekend, and uh, you really do see all of the things that um, that you mentioned. You, you had one of my friends uh, has a t-shirt shop, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and um, 
he was there with uh, with his uh, with some silk screens and so forth. People were donating T-shirts, and so anybody could go and get a T-shirt and have have a, a slogan or a message or you know propaganda made on their shirt for the day. And sure. there was there was a, a wardrobe for so uh, I didn't have anything that had the ninety nine percent, and so I could go and find a shirt of my size. I wore it for the day, and then I returned it. You had the libraries. Uh, my friend and I, a colleague right. at the university, we brought uh, we brought food for the kitchen and it's a great juxtaposition to uh when when everybody is being told that uh you know again we were talking before you mentioned how you know if if this if these are the rules of society or if human nature you know everyone says well greed is part of human nature well what you see is well then let's let's play against human nature and it Mm -hmm. actually shows that uh, people can build this uh you know there were 300 to 500 people out there in LA. It's not quite the size of, of uh, New York, but you know it's not bad. And right. uh, you've got a kitchen, and as you mentioned, you've got the the daycare, and you've got people bringing their their tools of the trade, and everybody sharing, and everybody mm-hmm. uh, cooperating. And uh, it's a fun endeavor, and it it shows that you can. Play Maybe there's a a play, if you'll pardon me, a play on the word play, that it's not just play, but it's playing by your own set of rules. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I I think that what you were seeing, in all seriousness, when you're looking at an environment where you have 25% unemployment, I mean, because the people, the 10%, 9.1% official number only counts the people that are actively looking. Sure. Once you've done your two years, you're off the roll. They don't count you anymore. So we're in a situation where people are being, foreclosures are increasing. Banks are increasing foreclosures. People are losing their homes. What else are people going to do? They can't just stay at home and, you know, those college students that get out of school aren't just going to stay at home and smoke pot and watch TV at their parents' houses. Now there's a space where they're able to go there and meet other people and talk about their own struggles together. I think that what we're seeing here, everything you're describing, everything that I've seen here at Coast Away is a new model of mutual aid, a sharing economy that people are building together where people bring what they can and share. And um, it's sustaining itself and growing. And people realize this is, I mean, there's more and more people from different walks of life showing up and building this space together. So I think we need it. I think we need it. I mean, we had Hoovervilles, you know, from 1929 to 1933. I think, I think that if the economy, if the Great Recession continues, where else are people going to go? Where else are they going to get that this kind of support that they need? Um, I think that that's part of what the vitality of this movement is all about. And they also, so the people have to get their needs met. They have to have their social needs met as well as their food needs, as well as their needs for, we are social creatures. And by ourselves, it's going to be very hard to cope with an economy that isn't going to support a new generation trying to find work. But with other people, people can make it. And I think that's part of what we see. Um, Victor Frankl talked about in the camps um, during when he was uh, in a prison camp in, a, in World War II. He said the people that connected with other people were the ones that were able to make it. The people that had a sense of humor were able to make it. The people that had a sense of faith were the ones that continued to make it. This wasn't a guarantee that everyone, that those people would make it, but there was certainly 
those that didn't connect with other people or work with other people, they were not the ones that tended to make it. That's what he suggested. And I think that we're finding that now as people realize they can't make it by themselves. We need each other, you know. Absolutely. I mean, revolution means we care. That's what my friend Mark Anderson said. He built, he's a part of the, social, the, the shelter force movement in Washington, D.C. And I, I think that's what we're seeing now. And play is part of a way of showing people can, you care for them is by engaging in this collective compact together that you're going to build something with your own hands, with it within your own do-it-yourself passion rather than waiting for someone to give you permission. If you wait for somebody to give you permission, you'll wait all day, right? I want to <laughs> I mean, remind you. Douglas said, yeah. power concedes nothing without a demand. Absolutely. And sometimes a mutual aid space that people create is their own kind of a demand. They're not asking for the state to give them something as much as to create something on their own. One of the other examples that I see a lot that that has been built in New York City out of the last fiscal crisis, which in some places never ended, the fiscal crisis in New York City when the city went bankrupt. One of the things that people built, our mayor actually at the time recognized there were these vacant lots all over the city. Ed Koch and he kind of gave a message to the community, you have carte blanche, you can take these spaces, do whatever you need with them. And people in the community built community gardens, these green spaces, without permission from the state, without asking, without a lease, they cleaned up, took tires out, cleaned the dirt, took the syringes out, replanted soil and greens, and created literally a central park within the rubble of the fiscal crisis in New York City. These spaces of mutual aid created what Jane Jacobs calls the eyes on the street. The community could see what was going on in the street. People were able to have a space, unlike a bar or a coffee shop, which is exclusive, um, you had a space where kids could go, grandparents could go, people could have barbecues together and grow food together, um, play together. I take my kids to a garden on the Lower East Side called the Children's Magical Garden, and there's a swing on the garden where literally the old owner of the space tried to fence off the garden, and every, all the activists took the fence away and left left only the, the remains so people could swing on top of the bars that were left. Um, so play finds itself in lots of spaces and movements. And it also seems to be uh, a, a kind of uh, moral jujitsu where the other side expects, when we talk about play as defiance, they expect you know the, the kind of militant defiance. And while certainly the kinds of examples that you, that you give, the, the mm-hmm. individuals are, are firm in their commitment to the values uh, to which they aspire, but right. it, it throws the opponent off. I mean, we, we the yippies. Uh, Abby Hoffman is just one of my favorites. The I, the idea of you know th- dropping money on uh, mm-hmm. the the, the uh, floor of Wall Street or uh, applying for a permit to levitate the, the, mm-hmm. the Pentagon is uh, is hilarious, disarming. Uh, maybe the most iconic image that I could think of uh, is the the individual who put the flower at the end of uh, the the rifle from. Uh, the the anti-Vietnam march where well, and, and, and George Harris of course went on to form the man who did that went on to form the the Coquettes which is the San Francisco uh, group that but uh, they 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 literally um, they formed a group of people that had a theater troupe in San Francisco where every rehearsal was a performance and every performance was a rehearsal they um, but. So, yeah, I completely agree. And I think when I saw the anti-war movement facing uh, real crackdowns from the state in the Bush era, I felt we felt like we needed to be a little bit more creative in how we would respond to this. Because if we, 
if we face the state with my weapon is bigger than your weapon, menacing looking in black, we were certain to be arrested. Absolutely. Whereas if we were creative about the way we challenge the state, that, 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 that gives the state a real challenge, a real question. How do I respond to these silly dressed up people? How do I dress? How do I, can I, can I arrest, erase a, I mean, arrest a tomato at a garden protest? No, not really. You look silly. So you, you challenge and disarm those in authority. And there's, there's, there's a history of this. Um, it's the, the wise fool. It's the, 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 the jester in, in the town court who brings a point with a, it brings a, an important message, maybe in a silly way. Um, and I think the that's jester. part of what we witness with these kinds of movements. I mean, there's there's the the clowns that went to uh, the Ku Klux Klan rally and uh, threw uh, white powder up in the air. So every time the Klan would preach white power, they would throw white powder up in the air and clap and chant back, and it eventually makes the Klan look really ridiculous. And I think that's part of the power of uh, that's part of the power of ridicule. And of course, right. And of course, the court jester was the one who could uh, tell the truth by using humor. So it's a way mm-hmm. to bring people in. Well, I told you, Ben Shepard, that I would keep you about a half hour, and so we're running short on time. So I'm going to uh, wrap up by. Uh, Combining two questions into one, and uh, the the question is, uh, are there issues uh, or movements or times when play may not be appropriate? And then the the follow-up to that is, um, is play effective in bringing about change, or is it simply effective in, in sustaining movements? Well, I think that obviously there are, are lots of moments in life where play is not appropriate. I, I, I wouldn't, um, I participate in activism around um, police accountability, and I, I think uh, I think that. Um, I mean, I remember when the Diallo verdict came up. I wouldn't. I didn't think, see anybody playing in the streets when there was the Diallo verdict in New York City. And just to, um, just to remind listeners, there just to rem- not really the time to play. I think that in New Orleans, they build in a tradition of transcendence with the marching bands. But um, obviously, I don't think it's always appropriate to every situation. We, we, there's never a point in a movement in fetishizing one tactic or another. And, yeah, and- a movement has to be an intelligent movement builds its own strategies based on the calculations of the indigenous leadership of that movement. So if play can contribute to the campaign, that's great. Um, As far as social change goes, there are movements that I've been part of in my lifetime, such as the community garden movement, the movement to protect and preserve the community gardens, the movement to uh, create non-polluting transportation in New York City uh, with a network of bike lanes, which is obviously a national movement, international movement to uh, reduce global warming as well. These are all movements that have used play. And um, so the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, I mean, part of what got people to those meetings was because there was an element of play, of sexiness, of theatricality. So those are three examples that I can name in my own lifetime where these movements have created change over the long term. So is it everything in a movement? Certainly not. And if, if, it, if play isn't con- connected to... Um, 
a larger campaign for change, as Marcuse says, it becomes repressive desublimation. There's nothing wrong with people getting together with their friends. There's nothing wrong with that. But when those networks of friends get together and play toward an aim, toward an end, that's the possibility for change. And I think that's what's so exciting about um, what we're witnessing right now around the world is indigenous leadership and movements, people saying, we've had enough. It's time to create something better with this world. And uh, I think we're going to look back at 2011 and think, wow, what a year. It already has been. But um, I really, really appreciate getting the time to talk with you a little bit about the work. And I want to commend you on your continued peace work um, as well as cultural work. I love your recent book. So thank you very much for all you do. Absolutely. The The book is called Play, Creativity, and Social Movements. If I Can't Dance, It's Not My Revolution. And uh, Ben Shepard, thanks so much for joining us. Is there a website where people could uh, read some of your your articles or posts or find out more? Absolutely. Um, My website is BenjaminHeimShepard.com. B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N, BenjaminHeimShepard.com. Dot com. And my blog is also linked. And Heim is... Play and Ideas blog is linked there. And Heim Thank is spelled... Thank you so much for having me. How is Heim spelled? H-E-I-M. Beautiful. And uh, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll have to have you back sometime soon. Thank you so much. All take right, care. Take care.